everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you, and as always, Brandon Odo. Hello. Today we have fan favorite, friend of the podcast, the one, the only, Matt Shuba. Back to talk more complications in the ICU and, and hopefully how to prevent them as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all right. So Brandon's going to take you through a couple of cases. I'm going to chime in with questions and snide remarks from time to time, <laughs> and hopefully we'll all learn something at the end. All right, Matt, you are back in the uh, complication care unit <laughs> after a... a, a or I work a, in that <laughs> unit from time to time. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we all do. Yeah. So you, you, you kind of managed to eke your way through last time, but you're, you're back on for a new shift today. Um, it's a day shift, and you come across one of the patients on your panel. This is a 50-year-old male who was admitted for sepsis. This is some days ago. He was hypotensive, never mind what the source was, but he got fluids, pressors, he got intubated, and he's been on the vent about three days now. He's been improving clinically. Uh, his gas exchange is better. He's down to fairly minimal settings on the ventilator. So per the unit protocol, he gets a spontaneous breathing trial in the morning. And uh, you come across him while he's on it. He's on pressure support, five over five. And he looks okay. Um, he's getting modest tidal volumes. His saturating okay. He's a little tachypnic maybe in the high 20s or around 30. His rapid shallow breathing index is perhaps around 100. So you all kind of stroke your chins and gaze at him, but he looks decent, so you decide to go ahead and extubate him. So the respiratory therapists get him all prepped, they take the tube out, and shortly after, he looks a little worse. They place him on a nasal cannula, but his breathing is to be honest, a little labored. Uh, he looks a little short of breath and uncomfortable, and he's not oxygenating as well as you sort of hoped. Uh, he's on six liters of oxygen by nasal cannula, and he's saturating like maybe 89%, high 80s. He also has maybe a little bit of strider, a little bit of a noisy uh, upper airway. Um, so, the nurse and the therapist are there. They're saying, you know, what do you want to do with this guy? What's your sort of first response and approach when you extubate someone and they don't look to be doing that well? Yeah, this is such a common scenario. Uh, it's, it's something that's really worth spending some time talking and thinking about. So in the first case, we kind of had this guy who looked modest to to be extubated. Uh, and, and I think what I where I would have liked to start with this guy is I have somebody who's kind of marginal, borderline. Um, RSBI for what it is is not that encouraging in this case, and you know, his, it seemed like he was his work was probably a little higher than what I would have liked. So at this time, I, I think at that point it was a decision point for us to decide if we wanted to extubate him uh, electively to some sort of other device rather than just room air or nasal cannula, um, and I think that may have mitigated some of what we're seeing. 
So, and, you know, there's uh, data from the Highween trial that suggests that patients uh, who are over age 65 or patients with chronic cardiopulmonary disease have a lower risk of intubation using non-invasive, uh, you know, sprinting on and off non-invasive with high flow compared to high flow alone. Um, so I think this is somebody, you know, depending on what his past medical history said, I would have at least thought about that beforehand. Now it's easier for me to say that because I know he's not doing well, but it's something where I have that marginal case. I'm starting to think about that. That doesn't mean everybody with diastolic heart failure uh, gets extubated to non-invasive, but it's something, especially in these cases where you're just not quite sure how people are going to do. That's something that I at least entertain. So you would, you have a reasonably low threshold to extubate people with any question uh, onto high flow? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it kind of depends on the overall trajectory. You know, I'm, I, you know, the guy's in, only in the ICU for three days. Uh, he was vented. You know, I'm guessing he was pretty sick, but I don't really have all the details. So the trajectory overall plays a big role in it. But, you know, I think if I can, you know, spit, save somebody a day on the ventilator, I always try to move in that direction. So it's this is somebody I think, even though I know he's doing poorly, I still probably would have extubated this patient. Um, I just may have done it in a slightly different manner. Um, but this is somebody who beforehand, they look kind of, they don't look fully optimized. You think about extubating to alternative devices, you think about their volume status, um, anything else that you might be able to optimize before you make, you know, put them in a situation where I have to breathe unassisted. Now, a lot of people would say, you know, that seems like a lot of work. Can you extubate, see how they're doing, and then put them on some other support? Um, how much benefit do you think there is in extubating straight to some other device? It really, I think, depends on what you think your sort of pre-intervention probability is of them doing poorly. Like, I think if they have anybody, you know, anybody with any significant degree of, uh, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or like significant heart failure, I'm I'm pulling the, the non-invasive in the room right away. There are other patients where I think it's probably permissible to say, I'm going to have this on standby. The problem with that is, and it's you know, this is semantics to some degree, is then it's becoming a rescue strategy. And then it's harder for me cognitively to decide whether I'm doing that uh, as a, um, to mitigate my feeling of failure uh, of having extubated this patient uh, and them not doing well, or if I'm actually doing it like in a still sort pseudo proactive manner um, to give them the best chance to fly. So, you know, you might argue it's, you know, kind of overkill um, in a lot of patients, but I think, you know, the longer you've been on the vent, the more I'm going to think about a, some sort of uh, non-invasive respiratory support, whether it's NIV or high flow, um, or if you have these comorbidities or, you know, people with some degree of frailty. Um, I think those are people I'm thinking about this a little bit more. And again, if there's somebody that's then, you know, you extubate them to NIV, they look fantastic. Okay, well, I'm not going to necessarily say I have to put them in a clinical trial protocol and go on and off non-invasive every four hours. Maybe uh, it's a case where I would rather extubate aggressively and then maybe a little bit too aggressively support them right after and find out that that wasn't necessary rather than the other way around. I, I, I know that's like, it feels like semantics, but I think the cognitive framework is completely different. And, uh, and recognizing failure in somebody who are like, oh, let's slap the BiPAP on them. And then you come see them a few more hours. They look kind of the same as they did before. You don't know if you made progress or not. I know it's just, it, it frames the situation completely differently. And maybe that's just in my head, but that's the way that I feel like these things go. And then you come back and you say, oh yeah, they, they, they went on NIV um, sort of as a urgency. And then, you know, 
you come in and then you, you know, let's say you left for the day and you come in the next morning, they were on non-invasive all night. Okay. That was a failure, right? Like we, no, no, and nobody at that point, no one's willing to admit that it was a failure. So if you extubate someone to high flow or CPAP or something, um, and they look, they look good. What's like the minimum amount of time you would leave them on that? I assume you wouldn't put them on for, you know, two minutes and they look pretty good. So you just take it off. You'll leave them on some amount of time. I think at least a couple hours just to see how they settle out and, um, you know, I, I just like anybody else that I put on non-invasive, I like to give them a trial, just like extubating something, I like to give them a trial off as soon as I possibly can. So whether that's two to four hours, you know, that's an arbitrary number, but that's kind of the the, the sweet spot for me. Same with high flow. I mean, high flow is a lot easier to just kind of take on and take off. Um, but it's one of those things where like, okay, I'll give it its due. And, you know, if I come in later and the patient's, you know, eating dinner, chatting with their family, they look fantastic maybe trial them back off because, you know, again, I don't don't want to have them on something that they don't need, but I, I, I feel a little bit better proactively introducing things rather than trying to rescue somebody who's failing from uh, unsuccessful extubation. Okay. So in this case, it may have been clever to extubate him to some other modality directly, maybe make sure his, uh, his volume status is optimized. Anything else you think that can kind of help prevent this sort of thing from happening beforehand? Yeah, I think one one thing to to bear in mind uh, is, you know, what what kind of what kind of you know A B C D E F strategy do we have for him leading up to this point? So if the guy's been snowed on propofol and fentanyl for three days, and this is the first time we wake him up, I mean, we're we're kind of starting from behind. So this is somebody, you know, if if his from a ventilation standpoint and from a shock standpoint, if you get it handled, minimal to no sedation. Analgesia first strategy, trying to keep them awake, trying to at least keep them sitting up in bed. I know not everybody has the opportunity to mobilize their patients, um, like fully mobilize, but at least, you know, having them sitting up, being awake as much as possible, maybe doing some PT in the bed. Like those are the things that I think can make a big difference, even though you say it's only three days. Well, three days in bed is a long time. So that's another thing that I think I would have liked to optimize in addition to uh, that. I, I do. As we talked about, I think the first time we talked, I really got to keep a close eye on the volume status from day one because, you know, you go to excavate somebody on day three, they're off pressors, you're so happy, they're on 40% oxygen, A to peep, something like that. And then you see that they're like nine liters positive and you didn't even necessarily give them a bunch of boluses. It's just like all the drips and everything kind of added up. Like it's that that's something I think requires a proactive rather than a reactive strategy. It's similar to the applying the non-invasive kind of electively ahead of time saying, I'm intentionally making this choice so that things don't turn out worse sometime later. Um, and, and volume status works the same way. I mean, it's so easy for people to get two and a half liters of, of drips even when you're not giving them any maintenance fluid or you're not giving them boluses. And then so imagine if you're in a fluid liberal uh, framework, then maybe it's 12 liters, 15 liters positive. And then um, you don't necessarily see the respiratory effects of that until you take them off positive pressure. And then then you're kind of fighting from behind. Would you ever try to uh, test that ahead of time by giving them a trial on something like zero PEEP or, or T-piece? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I think... I, I go back and forth about that a lot. I, I will say in my practice, I almost never use those uh, those kind of settings. If I think uh, this this is probably a little fancier than what's nor necessary, but sometimes what I'll do is if I have a capable capable ventilator, I'll use the mode called tube compensation, which you dial in whether it's an ET tube or a trach and the size of the endotracheal tube and uh, then the ventilator. It's a servo mode of ventilation, so it only provides enough. Uh, 
enough inspiratory pressure to overcome the resistance of the endotracheal tube. Because we always say, oh, put people in five and five, and then you know, you're overcoming the resistance. Well, if they have an eight five tube in, they probably don't need that big of uh, the five of inspiratory pressure might be too 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 much. If they have a seven o tube in, that five of inspiratory pressure might be too little. So I think that's one way that we kind of fool ourselves positively and negatively with the inspiratory pressure. It's it's a little hard to say. So, but I only do that again. Not all vents have it. So if I have a vent that has it, and I have a patient who I think is high risk to you know develop pulmonary edema, then I will use it. I don't use T-piece trials, and I realize there's like an evidence base for them. I cognitively have a hard time with it. It just kind of feels like, I don't know, it feels a little rough to me. I don't like to do it. I, I think I would be very upset if somebody put me on a T-piece. So um, I think, again, that's like totally my cognitive bias, and it's not an evidence-based statement, but I, I generally don't. But yeah, I think using a lower PEEP strategy or, or you know, a lower amount of support is reasonable. But again, if you think somebody's high risk for cardiogenic pulmonary edema, just extubate them to non-invasive, and then we take the ventilator out of the equation anyway. The the problem is you're not going to necessarily recognize the non or the uh, non cardiogenic pulmonary edema patient, like a you know sort of a smoldering ARDS patient until you sometimes until you take them off positive pressure. Um, so yeah, I think it's a defensible thing to do, but it's not something that's in my practice. Now, this particular patient may also be demonstrating some strider after yeah. extubation. Does that change anything in your approach? Yeah, it worries me a little bit. So there's a couple things that come to mind. Obviously, you know, critical airway narrowing is like one of the scariest things that we can all encounter. Um, this is a time to say, you know, was this something expected or not? I'm not hearing that. Like, this is not somebody that was overtly like, oh, he was a traumatic intubation or, oh, he got angioedema from the Piptazo that he got when he came to the ED. Like, I'm not hearing those kind of stories or I thought this was like a high-risk airway. So this is sometimes like, shoot, this is luck of the draw kind of a situation. And then, yeah, you kind of have to scramble. And then the question is, how much time do you have? Uh, do you have, is this somebody that needs to be immediately reintubated or is this somebody that you can have time to trial some, you know, let's say supportive and, uh, anti-inflammatory type therapies. So I think depending on how bad the patient looks like, if the patient's in the tripod position, he's getting reintubated period. I'm not going to play around. Like it's not worth it. Not worth the risk. If it's like, oh, it's inspiratory, uh, sounds are kind of noisy and they're a little bit kind of like Strider. Then I'm like, okay, maybe we'll do the you know, decadron, racemic, and, you know, if he needs it, try, you know, straight CPAP for a hot minute by like a couple hours. Um, and if he's stabilizing, then try him off a little bit later. I think that's, uh, you know, again, I don't think no one's ever studied that approach, but I think that's a reasonable strategy. Um, I also think this is one of those things where it depends on who's around, um, what their airway skills are, you know, if this is somebody I exhibit them at four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm going to go home and there's nobody to cross cover for airways at night except like an emergency doc in the, you know, emergency room. Not to say anything that's wrong with an emergency doc doing it, just saying like the person's not in the unit, they're not going to be watching them like a hawk. If you don't have that kind of bedside support at night, that's probably somebody you just need to err on the side of caution because a critical airway narrowing is like a huge nightmare. Um, so it depends on the severity and it also depends on what personnel are around and what their comfort with the airway is. So in this particular patient's case, um, his strider is, it seems like it's real, um, it's, but it's not horribly dramatic. And as I said, he looks perhaps a little labored and a little more hypoxemic, but I mean, you can't necessarily prove that that's from the upper airway. He may have other reasons for it. Um, so you said you'd maybe try him on CPAP, BiPAP, 
Um, you said racemic epinephrine. Um, how often do you do that? That's a good question. It's This is one of those things where I'm like, I, I feel like I'm vaguely almost in the voodoo territory, so I, I don't want to make like a strong recommendation about it. I, I, I probably wouldn't do it more than every four hours. And if I have to give the second dose, it's already been probably too long. The person's had strider and doesn't have a protected airway. Um, it's funny how things are different and, you know, depending on the setting you're in. I mean, when I, you know, I, I trained in, in med peds and, you know, we admit kids to the regular floor with croup and they had horrid strider and, you know, they have critical airway narrowing and we just kind of sit on them for like, you know, you don't intubate that patient unless you absolutely need to, but when you need to, boy, it's scary. Um, whereas in the adult ICU, if we hear an upper airway noise, we're like, everyone gets a laryngoscope and, and, and gathers around the bed. So, I mean, I think risk tolerance could probably be better titrated here, but I, I do think it's totally appropriate to respect it. And let's say this patient was like on room air vent five of peep and you extubated them and they have strider and they have hypoxemia. Okay. That person has severely critical airway narrowing if their hypoxemia is from the strider and that person just needs to be intubated period. Like don't play around. This patient is kind of like in that intermediate zone where I think I would at least trial things for a few hours to see if I can make it better. I will tell you that I feel most often, you know, more often than not, the supportive strategy seems to work. But again, I'm not doing it in people who are tripoding with accessory muscle use. Um, I'm doing it in people who are kind of like, oh, they don't look great, but maybe we can try some things and see if they can cool off. And, you know, if you extubate them at, at lunchtime and by dinner time, they're like coming off NIV and they look okay then maybe you saved them a new endotracheal tube. But it is, uh, it's a little difficult. It's a hard call. I'll be honest with you. It's a really difficult call. And you mentioned steroids. What's your dose there? Um, you know, this is a, a voodoo scenario as well. Um, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go. I am, uh, you know, there are people who do methylpred at, you know, weight-based dosing. There are people who dec decadron for 24 hours or whatever. I usually, you know, decadron has such a, ha a long half-life. I'll give them like 10 IV and then we'll see where the chips, you know, fall um, but you know, there's not, I don't think there's like a super right answer to that. Like post extubation, try Like there's a, you know, preemptive dosing of methylpred or decadron, and then you, you know, re-SPT them later. And, but this is like a, a different scenario than that. So I, again, I'm pulling, it's a voodoo number, but that's kind of what I do. Now, other than just bad luck and, you know, considering elements of the history, are there any ways that we can predict or prevent this sort of post extubation strider, um, for instance, are you interested in checking cuff leaks before you take out tubes? Um, generally, in a patient that does not have a pre-recognized high-risk airway, so somebody that didn't come in with angioedema or some sort of facial trauma or a peritonsillar abscess or something where you just, or a traumatic intubation, outside of those situations, when people start telling me about the results of a cuff leak, I usually cover my ears. Um, and I do that kind of to demonstrate that that is not information that I want to have. And the reason for that is the test characteristics for it, uh, to predict airway, you know, post extubation strider are pretty bad. And the likely thing that's going to happen is the patient has no cuff leak and it's something that's completely, uh, benign. And then I leave them on, I give them steroids and I leave them on the vent for another 12 or 24 hours. That, that 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 never feels good to me. Um, and and again, if it had better test characteristics, I I would be more interested in doing that. There's a conversation about this uh, on Twitter recently, like in the last week or two, and uh, and Sam Brown was saying that sometimes he'll uh, if he's if it's a high risk airway and they don't have a endo, and and they don't have a cuff leak, he'll like 
while they're still sedated, stick a glide in, take a look at the cords and see, you know, sometimes it's just like matted secretions around the cords or things like that. Um, and if that's something that makes it easy for him to decide not to keep the patient intubated, like, okay, that's a viable strategy. Again, in a patient with a high risk airway who doesn't have a cuff leak, that's a reasonable thing to do. The things that you don't, you're not taking into consideration when you do this is like cord size relative to ET tube size. Um, and to illustrate this, um, I was working at a hospital. I think this was maybe, I don't know. It was a while ago. But there was an a elderly woman, and she was pretty petite. Like, you know, her you know her BMI was probably like 20, 22, and she was just kind of small-framed. And she was intubated with a 7.5 tube, had septic shock, encephalopathy, and then sat on the vent for like four or five days because she didn't have a cuff leak. And I was rounding at night, and I went to go see her, and... You know, I had heard that the night before and I said, okay, I don't really know the patient, so I'm not going to make a big change. And I came in the next thing. I was like, you know what? At some point, we just got to take this tube out and see what happens um, because maybe this tube is just too big for her. So I took the tube out and they were like, it was to the point where I think she's been on the vent for like seven to 10 days. They're starting to talk about trach and things like that. So I just, I just extubated her and she did fine. Uh, now this is an anecdote, but the purpose of the anecdote is to like try to contextualize why somebody might, if you're going to make a decision based on a cuff leak, try to contextualize uh why they may not have a cuff leak. Right. Presumably, if you put a large enough tube into a small enough airway, it'll never have a cuff leak, but that yeah. doesn't mean that it'll get any smaller when you take the tube out. Exactly. All right. So let us leave that patient for now. They're sort of um, struggling along on, <laughs> on some BiPAP. Um, but you actually you get a call from another patient down the hall. This is a, a 34-year-old male with pancreatitis. Um, he, too, came in a few days ago. He was intubated, placed on pressors, got a bunch of fluids. Um, and he's been a little bit of a handful to keep uh, stable and safe on the ventilator. He's been on propofol and fentanyl drips. Um, and you get a call from the nurse saying that he's, he's pretty agitated. He's up at the, you know, just about the max dose of propofol you guys use. Um, so you say, well, you know, maybe you can increase the sedation a little, this is that. Uh, and then, you know, before you can turn around again, you get another call saying that this patient has managed to pull their ET tube out. So you kind of hop skip down the hall to see this patient and you do in fact see him lying in bed, still restrained, but with a tube that is at about, you know, seven centimeters now, <laughs> um, no waveform on the ventilator. He's kind of writhing around in bed. Before I give you any other information, what's your immediate approach to something like this? I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you think you're going to have to do sort of first and second here? Yeah. So the first thing in the absence of other information is, uh, what is the, you know, what is the stability of this patient right now? And it's really difficult to tell. I think, uh, it's probably going to be difficult to tell if this patient's that agitated thrashing around, he probably doesn't have a pulse ox that picks up and who knows if his, you know, if he has an art line, if that's reading or if he has a blood pressure cuff or, um, I'm hoping at, at minimum, we'll at least see what his heart rate is and see how differently, you know, how much that has changed. Um, but if the tube is like that far out, I mean, just take it out. Like, it's not, this is not something we're just going to like inch it back in and all of a sudden it's going to go into the right spot. So that tube is not doing you any good. And then, you know, if the patient is truly crashing unstable, um, this is an ABC situation and you, you know, have to quickly think about um, moving to RSI as quickly as possible. And that may mean 
um, sedating him a little ahead of time so he can tolerate pre-oxygenation um, and then pre-oxygenating him uh, with some sort, some form of positive pressure, whether it's NIV via the vent or whether it's, uh, you know, via um, bag mask ventilation. But, you know, this is somebody who is like, okay, you know, the story makes me worried that they're probably not going to tolerate this self-extubation very well from a physiologic standpoint. Why? Well, um, the guy was uh, pancreatitis, shock, respiratory failure, right? So, like, I have a feeling, I, I don't know, is he out of shock? I guess that's one thing. Yeah, he's uh, managed to get off his pressors sort of just today. Um, okay. He's positive, maybe six liters on his fluid balance. Um, he was starting to kind of inch towards recovery, but you wouldn't really plan on extubating him today. Gotcha. And vent-wise? I mean, at the time when he took a tube out, he was on 40% oxygen with a peep of six. And okay. he had been oxygenating reasonably on that. Okay. So, I mean, this is somebody who actually potentially might do okay. Uh, I think if they're not crashing and burning, usually what I do is uh, get the tube all the rest of the way out. And I'd like, if, if the, you know, this guy's agitated, I might have to change my approach a little bit. But generally, I'll just like literally pull up a chair and sit there and wait and see what happens. Um, just because I need to let this, you know, play out and let the, the trajectory establish itself a little bit. Now, if this guy's like agitated and thrashing around, that's going to be really difficult to do. Um, and this is one of those, one of the rare situations in which I actually will reach for, um, antipsychotics, uh, cause I usually, I don't use a lot of antipsychotics. I used to use a ton of antipsychotics in my practice before, you know, more recent studies came out just to try to minimize sedation. But this guy, like, okay, if he's that agitated and he just extubated, this is not a safe situation. And if he needs, you know, some intermittent doses of IV, you know, haloperidol or whatever you are using, then I think that's reasonable because this guy at least needs to be calm enough for you to do a proper assessment. Because, right, you don't know if he's thrashing around because he's hypoxemic and, uh, you know, and, and, and faring poorly in that way, or if it's just his ongoing encephalopathy that we're dealing with. So that situation is going to have to be controlled no matter what in order to do a safe assessment. Sure. And obviously, you would be holding drips like propofol that they were on. Oh, the yeah. Vent. Yeah. Yeah. Propofol comes off. Fentanyl comes off. Um, I I have, uh, you know, a, a, at least a half pixis amount of held all around. And then uh, also, you know, thinking about other medicines for agitation control that also could serve for RSI purposes like ketamine. Um, but those are the two meds that I'm usually grabbing in this situation to try to establish some safety and behavior control to better assess what's actually going on with the patient. Would something like dexmedetomidine be useful here? I think so. But um, you just have to bear in mind that for it to take effect, you're probably going to need to give it a good hour. Um, at least 30 minutes, but more likely an hour. So you need to have a strategy in the meanwhile. And that's one of the ways that I think we do a disservice to our patients and our nursing staff sometimes is that we say, well, the patient's agitated, the patient's anxious, the patient's XYZ. Let's just order Presidex for them. And then you order Presidex, uh, maybe has to come up from pharmacy. They at least have to string it up and it's going to take 30 to 60 minutes to kick in. So you need to have some sort of strategy until the dexmedetomidine can actually kick in. So that's where, you know, something like haloperidol is appealing because it'll work in minutes and then uh, you'll have time to, to titrate your, your dexmedetomidine. The other thing about that is uh, the default, and this is different in every situation or every hospital, but the default range and the default starting dose and Presidex is probably going to be inadequate for this patient who was maxed out on propofol and still agitated. So you have to think, at least consider starting at a higher dose. 
Um, so our dose range goes from 0.2 to 1.5 at the high end. Um, certainly you can increase it from there, but I don't think it actually makes any difference. But the default that it goes to actually is 0.2 to 0.7. Um, so I usually make it so it's the higher end of the range and I'll usually start somewhere in the middle, like 0.6, um, so that you'll reach an effect and it'll be quicker. Uh, and, and you'll be at a reasonable dose. Cause if you're starting at 0.2 and you're going up by 0.2 every what 15 to 30 minutes, you may have behavior improvement and safety improvement in four hours, which is not really suitable for this patient. So this is somebody who a misunderstanding of the way the drugs work gets him reintubated. Um, so I think that's why this is, that's a critical step, but yeah, I think if this guy's going to have ongoing agitation out of this critical period, which it seems highly likely, I think dexmedetomidine would be an appropriate choice. Are you ever bolusing a, a loading dose of dexmedetomidine for that purpose to get it on board faster? You know, I've only literally, I think I've done that like two or three times. There's maybe some safety issues with it. Uh, so it's not something that I've adopted into my practice. I don't know if that's something that you guys do, but I generally have not. Yeah, I, I also just a few times. I mean, that that was how the drug was originally approved for those of us who go back a little ways. And then I, everyone stopped doing it, I think, because people get bradycardic and hypotensive. I'll occasionally do it when they're really hypertensive and just bonkers. Uh, and even then, sometimes the, it'll kind of catch up with you. One approach I heard that I, I think makes a lot of sense is rather than doing really a, a load, just start at quite a high rate and then drop it later. Yeah, I, I, you know, I like that approach for medicines like dexmedetomy that take a little bit of time. Or, you know, if you have a, you know, on a completely different scenario, you know, if you're starting pressors on somebody whose MAP is 40, maybe don't start the norepi at the lowest range. Like, you know, those, those, that's, a, that's a time where I think, especially if you're working with, you know, inexperienced uh, nursing staff, then you really have to say, hey, we're going to start, you know, you know, put it in the order and then everyone's happy because like, you know, Jayco won't like fire you or anything. Um, but it's one of those things where you like put in the order, hey, please start at 20 or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever your dosing strategy is and whatever kind of you use weight based or not. But, you know, start it at an appropriate dose for the situation because every medicine that comes out as a titratable usually starts at whatever the lowest number is. And that may be wholly inappropriate for the situation. I think nitroglycerin drips are another great example of that where you can put somebody on five of nitro, I guess, if you want. It's kind of like homeopathy at that point. Um, but it's one of those things where like, yeah, titrating to effect is important, but you have to start from a reasonable place for the situation the patient's in. So I, I like starting decks higher. Um, yeah, so you could start at the top. I usually start in the middle. That way, if I, I have issues with like bradycardia or things, hopefully I didn't make it too, too bad, too fast. In a patient like this who, you know, accidentally is extubated and you're, you're waiting and seeing if you're going to need to reintubate them. I mean, are you preparing fully to innovate them and you're getting equipment and drugs ready and you're standing there kind of with a, a tube in hand? I generally will have the, um, just because there's a little bit of startup time for uh, respiratory therapy to, you know, well, the vents, in this case, the vents are already in the room, which is handy, but just make sure like whatever airway equipment that you want is at the bedside, not necessarily to the point where I'm like covering over the back of the patient's bed, like, you know, that kind of a thing, but just make sure everything is there. So if you needed to move to it in the next, you know, five minutes, you could do it. I think that's, you know, in the patient that's not overtly crashing, I think that's an appropriate level of readiness. And it also maybe lowers the threshold appropriately to reintubate them if they're failing. Because again, it's one of those things where okay, he's excavated and doing okay. And then you see him two hours later and he's like, okay, he's, he's okay, but he's not quite as okay as he was two hours ago. And that trend continues. Then there's a little bit of like, you know, sort of, you know, inertia to kind of keep him the way he is, whether that's appropriate or not. Whereas I like 
to have to be a little bit overprepared. And then if things are not needed, we don't use them. Like there's a lot of times I have, you know, a video laryngoscope outside the room um, because some, it might go poorly. And then everyone knows like we have a plan for that. But uh, I think being underprepared in that situation is bad, especially if this, you know, if this guy, you know, had took an abrupt turn, um, I think it's it's reasonable uh, just to, to be fully ready. And, you know, the nurse at least to know the drugs or have the drugs, you know, in close proximity, know, know the doses that you want and make sure your access is good, like kind of prep for intubation. Uh, but, you know, being a little bit deliberate about it so that you don't necessarily have to, you know, again, stand, you know, step to the patient's uh, head of the bed and, and be ready to do it. But I think that level of readiness is, is appropriate um, just so everyone's on the same page. So when you look back in time with a, a patient like this, what do you think, if anything, might have been done differently to prevent this from happening? Is it purely luck of the draw? I mean, are there factors that could have contributed to a patient like this being accidentally extubated? Yeah, so I think there's there's a couple there's a couple of factors here to consider. One is I always tell people I always tell my residents and fellowists and, and APPs that I work with it's sort of ingest, but it's sort of accurate. Like if a patient self extubates and they fly, we should maybe feel a little bad about ourselves that we had them on the vent still. Um, that's that's an opportunity to to show that this person was ready to wean, and maybe maybe this guy was not being weaned because of his agitation. And I think that's just such a ne- that's just such a negative cycle to enter when you say the patient's too agitated to be extubated. And then, so then you go up on sedation or you start layering in other drugs to try to manage your agitation. And yeah, sometimes those things are necessary. I just don't think they're as necessary as often as we give, as we think. And, you know, if the person is purely agitated, but they're physiologically doing better, the endotracheal tube is not improving the agitation management. So my first thought is if the patient flies like, okay, what was the barrier to him, to him being extubated earlier? And if it was us you know, saying, oh, his mental status wasn't there. Well, you know, he doesn't need to do a Sudoku puzzle to breathe. He just needs to be able to breathe. Um, and sometimes if you say, I think the, the, the other place that we get into trouble, kind of like I'm saying about the patient who just self-extubated uh, is, you know, I need to be able to assess his respiratory mechanics and his vitals to see if he's safe. The same thing I think is true on SBTs. If you turn off the drips, uh, SAT, SBTs, you turn off the drips and the guy is wild um, you have no idea if his respiratory, his failure, his SBT failure is from agitation or if it's from a physiologic process. So that is another situation, again, from a safety standpoint where I say, okay, I need to see if this patient's safe to breathe on his own or not. So that is a time where I would use some on-demand antipsychotics. Say, okay, let's chill this person out and then we'll see what, how, what the respiratory mechanics are. And this is more important in somebody that's like totally physiologically disrupted like this guy with pancreatitis. This is not, this strategy does not apply necessarily as well to somebody who was like a, a drug overdose who got intubated for airway protection and now they're on, and they're on 80 propofol and they're trying to self-extubate. I'm like, okay, just extubate the patient. They don't need to follow commands. Uh, just take the tube out because they don't want the tube in. And they don't have other physiologic derangements, right? They're not in shock. They didn't have. They don't have ARDS from aspiration. Like, if it's purely mental status, just take the tube out. The problem is in these cases, this gentleman, you have no idea if he's physiologically ready or not. But this is the opportunity during the SAT, SBT to say, okay, this guy is wild, and I cannot make heads or tails out of his respiratory mechanics. So I need to do something to manage the agitation to see how he looks with that, you know, sort of controlled for. 
And, and then you can do a proper SBT. And, you know, an example of this is there's, you know, a, a stereo, stereotypical patient like this would be like the young asthma patient um, who is intubated. Okay, you know, if that, that patient's intubated, they they had horrible pulmonary physiology. But a lot of them are younger. They took a lot of medicine to sedate them. They may have a lot of delirium. So then you, you know, you get to the point where you're going to SAT and SBT them and you have no idea if they're breathing 40 times a minute uh, intermittently and thrashing around because they can't breathe they're you know, they're still very obstructed or because it's purely agitation delirium. So you have to take that out of the picture. You have to lice that problem in order to assess the other problem. And again, we still need to be proactive in treating and managing delirium, but we can do that once the tube is out. The tube doesn't need to be in to treat delirium if anything's going to make it worse. So that's all on the managing whether or not this patient needed to be intubated side of the self-extubation. The other side is uh, safety on the ventilator. So let's say we said in no way, shape, or form is this guy ready to be extubated, um, but he is very, very agitated, and this is interfering with his ability to be cared for safely. And obviously it did interfere because he extubated himself. Well, this is a situation where you need to think, is sedation the strategy that I need, or does he need some sort of you know, ant agitation management. Is this somebody who needs intermittent dosing of antipsychotics or is this somebody who needs an additional sedative, you know, depending on what the, what's contextually appropriate for the patient. But obviously, you know, you, you kind of left the nurse in a bad position where you said, okay, well, the propofol is maxed out and we're up on fentanyl and I don't know what else to do. And now the patient self-extubated. That doesn't make anybody feel like they did the right thing. And it makes the nurse feel like they were hung out to dry. So I think that is a situation where you have to say, okay, we need a strategy for this. And just cranking up propofol forever and ever is not a great one. Agitation may be due to delirium. It may be due to pain. You know, these are all things we need to assess. It may be due to underlying psych problems. We need to make sure we have restarted whatever home meds that may have been overlooked. Like this is something, this is a condition that needs to be managed. And unless they're super physiologically deranged, I don't think that more sedation is probably the answer. So trying to get at some of the underlying problems there. Sedation certainly seems a lot of the time like it's it's all or nothing. I mean, you're either trying to lay the patient out or you're trying to have them somewhat more awake, but you don't want them in this middle ground where you're sedating them, but it's not working. Yeah, I'm just not sure what goal we achieved by having this patient be on so much sedative and analgesic medicine, and it still wasn't accomplishing the goal that we set out to accomplish with it. So basically, we were adding toxicity with no benefit. So it's like our strategy was wrong and we need to reassess that. Now, of course, in the short term, you may still have to do that. For instance, you reintubate this patient and the nurse says, all right, what are we doing now? Are you doing much the same, at least for now? And then you're perhaps trying to circle back and try to move the needle in the direction of a more functional patient. But I mean, you got propofol and fentanyl hanging in the room. Are you just starting them again? Yeah, so I think at this point, if this was a you know physiologic reason for respiratory failure, and maybe he's he's had a backslide, and now let's say he's not on forty percent anymore, he's on eighty percent, or you know something something where there's a clear you know clinical deterioration associated with it, then I I think it's reasonable to to say we need to take a little bit better control of the situation. We need to maybe add an adjunctive uh, sedative or um, or really work harder on the behavior control side of things. Because if it's really just a behavior control side of things, then maybe we do need to use more antipsychotics in this patient. But if it's like, okay, it's a sedation problem, his work of breathing is really high, 
Um, he's dyssynchronous with the ventilator. You know, like if it's like everything is going in the wrong direction now, then I think you really do need to clamp down and take over. So you add a sedative. Um, if they need neuromuscular blockers because they've all of a sudden developed ARDS or they develop fluoride shock, I mean, you do what you have to do in that cir circumstance. But obviously what we were doing before didn't work. So something had to change. It either needs to be a behavior side of things or it needs to be a, a we're going to take over and drive the physiology for 12 to 24 hours until this cools off. If somebody self-extubates or say accidentally extubates, maybe somebody trips on the tube or something, um, but, and then they fail, do you consider that much in the same way as any failure of extubation or is it worse? In other words, looking forward, you know, maybe the next day or two when you're thinking about, you know, again, extubating, are you thinking that this patient failed extubation a couple of days ago, or are you thinking this patient specifically self-extubated and had to be reintubated? Is that higher risk? You know, I don't know that I know the precise right answer to that. My feeling is it's not different, but they, you know, they kind of failed their SBT more or less. Uh, so you could say that's, that's a data point that I could take in. Now, uh, how traumatic was it? Like surprisingly with these inflated cuffs, like most of the time there's not a lot of airway trauma, which is wonderful. But now this is somebody where I have to at least consider that airway trauma may be part of their extubation journey when it comes up. Um, so this is maybe somebody now who I actually might listen to somebody telling me about a cuff leak in. Um, and then if they don't have it, maybe I think about steroids and then re-SBTing them in, you know, six or eight hours. And if that didn't go well, maybe the next day. But uh, I think that's the only part of the calculus that the, the, the two the two parts of the calculus that changed for me is one, I know this patient failed extubation when they self-extubated. Two, they may be a higher risk uh, airway now because they may have trauma. Though again, I, most of the time, I don't think that's the case. But otherwise, I try not to anchor too hard on it because then I think I'm going to do a disservice and keep them intubated for longer than they need to be. Sure. I, sometimes I almost think that we need to have less memory in critical care. People always remember when something didn't go well, but then it's like, all right, so are we, are we done trying that? Is that, <laughs> that going to stick with us forever? Oh, we tried to weed the sedation yesterday. It didn't work. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, day. <laughs> exactly. Like, and it's funny, you know, you, you turn down, people are like, well, they're, you know, they're really dyssynchronous with the ventilator. I'm like, okay, well, the sedation's not helping that. So turn off the sedation. And if it's no better than you know, it's no, it's no worse than we didn't hurt anything. This happens a lot, you know, and I, I think you, you, you guys both realize this, but you know, this, like, like you said, the sedation is at the level it, it, as it is because something happened two days ago. And, and a classic example of this is titration of like the analgesic side of things. So while they were very dyssynchronous when they came in, so we immediately put their fentanyl up to 250 or whatever, um, or they had a really bad pain spell two days ago and we put them up to 250 two days ago and it's still 250 three days later. You're like, okay, well, the acute problem has certainly gone away. Things have changed. It's a new day. It's a new hour. It's a new situation. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think sometimes a little bit of amnesia would be good for us. That's probably one of the good things sometimes about changing teams is, you know, a new person comes in, they don't have the memory of this, the, this patient self-extubating and going poorly on Saturday, and then you SBT them on Monday, and then they got ex extubated and they're, you know, doing fine. Right. Otherwise, it's like a ratchet effect. Things get turned up, but never turned down again because people are, are risk adverse. Absolutely. All right. Well, I, I think it's been a kind of nice look at this general topic of, of extubation and, you know, uh, 
ability to tolerate liberation from mechanical ventilation from these couple perspectives. Any kind of general thoughts around this topic? What do you think we're getting getting wrong in a global sense with this sort of issue? I think extubation hesitancy is one of the biggest problems in critical care. And it's a lot, a lot of it has to do with the reason that you mentioned that people, that that's what sticks in people's memories. They, they always, people will always remember if they told you they were worried that the patient was going to do well, and then the patient needed to be reintubated. They will not necessarily remember the other nine times when things went fine. Um, and that's one of the cognitive biases that's very challenging. So there's a couple of things to, to consider there. Number one is absolutely acknowledge when somebody has a concern about uh, a patient not doing well. They may be right. They're advocating for the patient. And most of all, you just need to be clear that you heard them. You took their, uh, you took their concerns into account and making your decision. And despite that, you still decided that this was the right thing for the patient. Then you always try to refocus it towards the patient. You don't say, Matt came in and Matt extubates everybody, so this patient's getting extubated. Like it doesn't work that way. You can say, okay, well, in my you know, this is this is my, you know, framework of how I'm viewing this patient and their journey of respiratory failure. And I think it's time for us to try to liberate them. And then you can start to educate on the things that are harmful about continued time on the ventilator, and then maybe come to a consensus. The other thing is I think people need to hear that you have a plan for what you're gonna do if the patient doesn't do well. Because a lot of times, you know, they, the, the, the respiratory therapist or the nurse or the family, they may just feel like you let, you know, let them hang out to dry if you just said, okay, we excavated them and they, they kind of don't look great. We're going to do a BiPAP for an unspecified period of time. And, you know, if they overtly fail, you know, we can come back and talk. No, you have to say, okay, when we meet these parameters, this is something that would make me think about changing the course. Um, you know, if we go on non-invasive and we haven't stabilized or improved by X time, then we should talk about going back on the ventilator. You know, like you just have to have a clear plan in place. So that's like the communication and expectation setting side of things. Like, yeah, some people will not pass extubation, but you know, like 70 or 80% of people will on their first try. So just do it. The second thing is we view extubation failure as a personal failure and like we did the patient harm. And yeah, you can look in literature and, and the literature will tell you that patients who require reintubation do worse. Well, they don't do worse because they got reintubated. Whatever the situation that caused them to get reintubated is why they have worse outcomes. So it's it's just a matter of saying, hey, I've addressed all the things that I think I can reverse in order to help this patient be successful in extubating. But to avoid extubation for the purpose of, I don't want to feel like I failed at extubating a patient is a really, really bad reason to keep a patient intubated. And, and, and when I put myself in the situation of being an ICU patient, if you keep an endotracheal tube in, for, in me for even 12 hours longer than I want, uh, we're going to have words when the tube comes out. Um, I'm going to be un upset about it. It's limited my ability to communicate. It's limited my ability to mobilize um, and to try to get back to normal. So I think any time that we can save a patient on the ventilator, we should. And that needs to be the framework. That's why we say um, always be extubating, right? So like that needs to be the mindset. Yeah, not everyone's going to be ready every day, but you should treat every day like it's extubation day. Yeah, I think sometimes just acknowledging uh, prospectively that this may be a somewhat higher risk extubation. You don't know that they're going to succeed, um, but you think it's worth a try is helpful because th that gives you a chance to say, make a plan for what you're going to do. Um, it kind of 
takes away that tacit assumption that you, you quote, believe in this and if it fails, then it's on you. But it also gives you the opportunity to say, yes, it's higher risk, but I still think it's higher risk to not do it. You're, you're acknowledging those risks of not extubating as well. And so you're saying, well, this is a, a risk benefit thing. And, you know, maybe that's true even for lower risk extubations. If we kind of put that on the table, then it it makes real those those risks of, of omission, of not doing anything, whereas otherwise it seems like there's only the other thing. Yeah, and, that, and that's, yeah, you know, that's the other part too is you're, you're absolutely right. Nobody sees an extra day on a ventilator as a failure, but they see a reintubation as a failure. Um, and and that's, that's a framework that we need to sort of work through as a community. It's always the, you know, what's perceived as a complication that sticks out and the, you know, 15 other times things went fine, no one even bats an eye at it. Brian, what do you think about all this? Well, I think you're right on with the, we talk about extubation hesitancy and the what defining what's a complication and what's a failure, right? N- nobody, you don't think about all the patients who were intubated too long, um, but we think about the patients who were, quote, extubated too soon. You know, I remember reading a study, um, I mean, it's been years ago now, something like 50% of patients in the study who self-extubated did not require reintubation. Uh, and the take-home message was, you know, when you get called about a self-extubation, don't be so quick to reintubate. But I think the other take-home message is there's a large percentage of people in your ICU who don't need to be intubated, right? If 50% of the people who are extubating don't need to be reintubated, then you have waited too long to extubate them. Now, maybe that was for good reason. Maybe, you know, it wasn't obvious to you that that they need to be extubated. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot of this we treat it as a personal failure. Uh, if we extubate somebody and they have to be reintubated, we don't do this with other things, right? We don't say that, you know, if I, uh, you know, I look at somebody and say they, uh, they look septic and I'm going to put them on broad spectrum antibiotics and their cultures come back negative. We don't go, well, that was a failure. You shouldn't have put them on antibiotics or we put them on antibiotics and comes back and it's resistant to that. We have to switch them. Nobody sees that as a failure of you personally. Um, but for some reason, we've decided that if you'd make the decision to extubate someone and they require reintubation, you did something wrong. Yeah, you know, the the immediacy of it is, I think, the challenging part, because it's like that's how we are all that's how we learn best is when you get immediate feedback. You extubate somebody and they fail within the first hour or two. That's such immediate feedback. And that is so noxious. Whereas if you let somebody be intubated for five extra days and now they develop they they de- they you know, go down the path of needing a tracheostomy or they develop chronic critical illness, you don't necessarily see your, that you were implicated in that process. But we all have done that. And we just, it's hard to see when that's true or not. But, you know, we, we see what's in front of us. We don't see what comes a year later. Right, right. Well, and I think the next step to that is is the self-extubation issue as well. I think we can also tend to look at a patient whose tube comes out accidentally. And then we start sort of pointing fingers around and being like, how did this happen? You know, you go find the nurse, hey, you know, were, were, were they restrained? You know, were they on enough sedation? And they're like, yeah, man, you know, it just stuff happens. Right. And, you know, likewise, if especially if you're trying to do things like, you know, get people off sedation and wake them up and liberate them, um, these are perhaps risks to that. Now, I, I think they're by and large not not substantial risks. But yeah, you should acknowledge that if you're ever hoping to, you know, make patients functional and wean and liberate them, then 
once in a blue moon, someone's tube may come out or they may get a little agitated or whatever. And again, is that risk worse than the risk of not doing those things? No, I don't think so. But it, it seems more tangible. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I used to work with a surgeon who would say, if you're not reintubating, I think he, I think he said 30%, uh, 30% of your ICU, then you're waiting too long to extubate people. I don't know where he gets that 30%. That may be a number that he pulled out of the air. It may be a number that I just made up because I can't remember what he's actually said, but I think there's some truth to it, right? That, uh, that if you're not reintubating, then you're probably waiting too long to extubate at least a small percentage of your population. Well, and maybe if you, I, I, I'm not arguing this, but maybe if, you know, 1% of your patients are not self-extubating, you're over-sedating them. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> there's probably something to that. Yeah, some, like, like some, something, some, there's something there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes some legitimate sense. If it sense. never happens, yeah, you're, I mean, you're probably being over-cautious with it, right? No doubt. Yeah. Well, and then and getting back to what we've said that, there, no one faults you for being overcautious, but people always fault you for being over risky. Not really, really risky, but over aggressive with um, extubation or sedation, vacations, etc. Yeah, we, we should reframe overcautious right. uh, as as over over medicalizing, over treating. Yes. You know, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. Like you know, you you needed that. You may have needed that medicine at the beginning. And now it's just there, like that sedation is just there and it's been there for a week. You know, these are things that we start and we need to, you know, kind of like we talked about before, we need to be as be as quick to remove as we are to add. But unfortunately, we're really quick to add and we're really slow to remove. Yeah. So, you know, in when I was in college, I knew a guy, um, he went to the same gym that I went to and he was a retired Secret Service agent. And he said something about working for the Secret Service. He said, the, the problem is... Uh, everybody knows your failures and nobody knows your successes because if you're doing your job right, nobody tries to kill the president. <laughs> and and so if nobody tries, then nobody knows, right? And exactly. so I think that's the same thing. If we're doing our job right, then it doesn't. Uh, we don't have these complications. That's what people see. But uh, in our case, when we're really doing our job right, is when we have complications because we're being aggressive about um, demedicalizing people. Yeah, and you know, just to 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 the heart of this discussion, you know, a patient being extubated and not not flying is not a complication, but chronic critical illness is a complication, and yeah. we can we can point the patient in one direction or the other uh, by our actions, but you know, I don't, but we don't again, we don't see it that way. We don't see the long term effects of what we do as have anything to do with what we're doing day to day. That's uh, that's a great example. I think it, all the sequela of the things we do, that is the definition of complication. It's secondary to medical treatment. Trying to get them off and then having problems, that's not really a complication. That's um, bad luck, I suppose. But Right. Well, that's yeah. working to prevent complications, but it's just, again, how do you define the complications? Right. All right, guys. Well, I think this has been a great chat. Matt, we are always so glad to have you. Um, I'm sure we can probably talk for almost forever about bad things that happen in the ICU, and maybe we'll have to make this a recurring segment. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Thanks, thanks to you both for having me on again.
Thanks for coming back. Yeah, if 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 anyone has not uh, has not been tuning in, uh, Matt's been working on his own content over at his website, uh, Um and there's some good stuff there. He's been developing a podcast and a number of other things. So if you like his sultry tones and his good ideas, I think you'll like them even more there. All right, everyone, remember that this podcast is meant just as general educational content, not as specific medical advice. Please don't change your practice based on this material alone. And the ideas you've heard are really those of the participants only. They're not meant to represent any of our affiliated institutions.